last week, as Terry asked me to do this, you know, I, in going through the leadership and all those classes, you know, it's, as, as an elder, this is one of the callings that uh, you have, is that, you know, when, when he goes out of town, you know, I'm up. And, um, you know, it's a very humbling deed to do. And um, I looked at Terry and I said, well, I said, God used a donkey before. He can do it again. <laughs> so here we go. So back, open your Bibles to First Thessalonians chapter 3. And the reason why we left Corinthians to go back to Acts is just to give you kind of the foundation of the church that we're going to be looking at this morning. It's a fascinating church. The message that I have this morning is, it's called A Call to Excel, an Overview of First Thessalonians. Now, don't worry, I'm not going to go through everything. All right, I'm going to read uh, chapter 3, verses 11 and 13. We'll start there, and uh, we will um, uh, begin. But first, let's uh, have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning seeking your truth, seeking your word. Father, as we read this, Father, as we go throughout your word this morning, we ask that you'd open our eyes, open our understanding. Uh, Father, as you have shown me this week, Father, the truths installed within your holy word. Father, we ask that uh, Father, that I would be put aside and your spirit would speak through me. And Father, that we would hear what you have to say to us this morning. Father, we love your word. It is a light into our path. And uh, Father, it is instructions uh, for us in righteousness. And Father, as we look at righteousness today, Father, help us understand Father, as we just sang, you are holy, and you alone are holy. And we ask, uh, Father, that uh, you would help us to see who we are, Father, in light of you. And uh, Father, we just praise you for this time this morning that we have in your word. We praise you that uh, for this time with brothers and sisters gathered here this morning, Father, that you would speak to us and that you would teach us this morning. In Christ's holy name, amen. 1 Thessalonians 3, 11 through 13. Now may our God and Father himself and Jesus our Lord direct our way to you. And may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people, just as we also do for you so that he may establish your hearts without blame in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. This is a church, it's a fascinating church as I was studying this and looking at the, the city of Thessalonica. And, and I was reading this, and this is uh, the um, book that I am studying currently. And it's a fascinating book, one of my favorites. But Paul here is 
calling them a, a work of love and steadfastness. In, uh, if you go back to chapter 1, uh, verse 3, he states, We give thanks to our God always for you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus. It's an amazing church. In this letter to the Thessalonians, it's interesting because in, in all the other letters that we've studied in, in Corinth, as, uh, especially the one that we've been going through, that this letter, Paul doesn't have to address any grave errors that they have made. There was no real serious doctrinal issues that were going on. There wasn't, in many of the books, Paul talks has to deal with people coming in behind him, teaching false doctrine. Paul doesn't have to address this to the Thessalonians. Which is amazing because as Nate read earlier, that he was there three Sabbaths. Now, he was there longer, but he was teaching in the synagogues for three Sabbaths. And from historical studies, the best that people can guess is probably three months that he stayed in Thessalonica before he was ran out of town to Berea. And also the Bereans as well, it says in the Bible, they were noble. And they heard the words, they studied the Scriptures, they went home, they looked at the Scriptures, and they too were converted. And then, not happy with Paul, the Jews coming in, not thinking that he was far enough away from them, chased them out of Berea as well. So Paul's time with them was a very short time. And it's amazing that this church just did so well. In studying this, in studying the, the city of Thessalonica, just a quick background. And I want to lay a foundation here so that we understand what, uh, the, what I want to talk about this morning, about how they excelled. But I want to give you just a, a little background of what was going on in Thessalonica because it'll help us understand the, the, the work that they were doing when Paul commends them for, for what they were doing and, and how that they were thriving and they, were, uh, they loved the Lord, they accepted the Word. It says earlier in, in chapter 1, not as the Word of men, but as the Word of God, as it is. So Thessalonica was uh, a capital city of Macedonia. Rome had split Macedonia into four sections, and of its sector, Macedonia was the capital. At this time in Paul's writing, it was a city of about 200,000 people. It was a harbor city, so it, got, it saw a lot of trade coming in and out. And it was also the what's called the Ignatian Way. It was a road that led from the Far East to Rome, and it was a way of trade. It was a trade route, but not just for the East and the West, but it was also from North and South as well, from the harbor in the South up uh, into uh, the uppermost parts of the Roman Empire. So it was a flourishing city of trade. And if you know anything about Roman history... 
that and, and Greek history that in a city like this there would have been a lot of philosophies. Especially because it was a trade route, there was a lot of people coming and going. And they would come in and they would sit down and, and they would discuss their philosophies. You had philosophies from as far as way as the Far East coming in. And so there was a lot going on in the city. It was a free city of Rome, which meant that um, it was uh, free to run its own self. It only had to pay tribute to Rome. As we read earlier that they accused Paul of um, declaring a new king, Christ, instead of Caesar, which would have caused some uproar because they did pay tribute to Caesar, even though they were a free city. The religious background of Thessalonica, being a Greek city, then the Romans came in. It was the Greco-Roman pantheon and the imperial cult. I'm sure you're all aware of the different gods and goddesses uh, of Greek mythology. But besides the Greek influence there, there was also Egyptian cults present. And history, uh, the Jewish actually had a huge population. Uh, Jews were, there was a big population of Jews. Hence the synagogue that Paul went into and was teaching for three weeks. So this is a city that, uh, pretty much like any city today here in the United States, there's a lot of philosophies being thrown around, a lot of mysticism, all kinds of cults from all over the world, religions from all over the world. And Paul comes along and establishes a church in this uh, city. So despite the city and the influences uh, of the philosophies, the, the religions, the different uh, cults, Despite that, when these people heard the, the words that were brought to them, the word of the Lord brought to them by Paul, he says in chapter 1, verse 9, how you turn to God from idols to serve a living and true God. And not only that, but in chapter two fourteen, he says, you became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you also endured the same suffering at the hands of your own countrymen. So Paul is saying, Paul's setting a background here of this wasn't an easy thing. This wasn't something that, you know, some easy believism that, that, that people might have. But that the society had turned on them. This was something that was contrary to them. And we see that as the Jews try to chase them out of town, first to Berea and then further on to Athens. If we go back to chapter 3, Paul is calling them to excel. And, and the fascinating thing about this, that I, as I was reading through this, from chapter, from chapter 3, verse 11, to chapter 4, verse 10, that's 12 verses... Three times in those 12 verses, Paul calls them, requests them to excel more. So in that, going back to our text, it says in chapter 3, verse 13, so that he may establish your hearts without blame in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Paul spends the first two chapters, three, uh, half of three, commending them for their service and what they've done. But at this point in uh, the letter, he calls them to excel, to do more. Okay? And what, we, what I want to focus on today is look at how that is done. What is Paul calling them to? Okay, what is Paul looking at? That's what I want to focus on here this morning. And then how does that affect us? Okay, as Christians, we've, whether you've grown up in the church or uh, you're saved at some point in your life, we, we start getting involved in things. We start reading our Bibles and, and, and God starts working and, and we start doing different things for the Lord and and, and sometimes we come to a place, maybe not you, but myself, where you kind of get into this complacency. And I love, you know, I read my Bible. I come to church. I fellowship with the brothers and sisters. But I, I just get to this point where it's almost like I plateau off and kind of cruise. I set my relationship with God into cruise control. But looking at this, This morning, three times in 12 verses, Paul calls them to excel. First in 12 and 13 of chapter 3. In chapter 4, verse 1, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, that you excel still more. Then again, further down in verse 10, for indeed you did practice towards all brethren who are in Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, to excel still more. So the, the people of Thessalonica were, were doing great. In fact, in verse uh, chapter 1, he says that the whole territory of Macedonia and Achaia have heard of your good works and your love. How you have gone from uh, change from God to serving God instead of the idols that you once did. But now he's calling them, and even though they had great work, the great works that they were doing and excelling and and the love for Christ and and the work that was being done, Paul's calling them to more. And I want to look at that this morning, just at a glance. The first thing he says there is in verse 12, And may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people, just as we also do, uh, also do for you. So, first of all, we get a glimpse of love. Okay? Paul is calling them. It's a prayer that he's coming out of, and he's calling them to grow in the gospel. And first he's calling them, I want you to increase and abound in love. Okay? So we're going to start there. Okay? Paul calls them to excel in love. Just as today, Paul calls us as well as Christians to excel in love. That in love, there is no room for complacency. And Jesus in Matthew 22, 34 and 30 through 37, gives us the greatest commandments when faced by the Pharisees and lawyers, people who knew the law very well, asked Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus responded, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Awesome. Okay? But he doesn't stop there. 
He says, love your neighbor as yourself. So we as Christians might love the Lord, our God, and read His Word and and fellowship with one another, but that's not the end. He calls us to love our neighbor as ourself. So we ask ourselves then, okay, what, what does that require? Okay, we've already established, Terry's already established that who is your neighbor? Anyone who's not you. I like that definition. Okay, so we're to love our neighbors as ourselves. So what kind of love is this? Is that, well, you know, I love you and, you know, you're, you're good. I don't hate you. It's not. We've looked at um, 1 Corinthians 13 and we see that love is not something, it's not some emotion, it's not something that, it's not something we just say, hey, I love you. Okay? It's, it's actually work. Love is work. Okay? Martin Luther talks about a, a living faith. I want to talk about a living love. Okay? Talks in James about, you know, faith without works. Okay? And, and a living faith. You're going to see that faith. Well, just as with faith, love is the same. Love is a living love. Love is something that you're going to see. And if we could just look at 1 Corinthians, we, won't, we don't have to turn there, and I'm not going to read it, but I'm going to list here what it talks love is. Love is defined as this. It's patient. It's kind. It's not jealous. Does not brag. Not arrogant. Does not act unbecoming. It does not seek its own. It does not take into account suffered. Does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices in truth. Bears all things. Believes all things. Hopes all things, endures all things, and love never fails. It never stops. To me, that sounds like a lot of verbs there. It's a living love, something that is going to be done, not something that can just be said, not some mushy emotion that, you know, I love you, and then I walk away and I don't see you ever again, or do anything for you ever again. But it is something that is working, it's living. In fact, Jesus also makes a statement in uh, chapter 25 of Matthew, verses 31 and 40. He talks about love defined. And if you turn there, he's talking about in the days, uh, Matthew 25, 31, starting at 31. But when the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before Him and He will separate them from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will put the sheep on His right and the goats on the left. And the King will say to those on His right, Come, you who are blessed of My Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. Naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and gave you something to drink? And when do we see you as a stranger and invite you in or naked and clothed you? When did, you, when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? The king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to the one of those brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. 
But here's the thing. It goes on. Then he will say also to those on his left, Depart from me, you accursed ones, into the eternal fire, from which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. And they will themselves also will answer, Lord, when did we see you as this? It is a work Jesus is saying here that, that if you love him, then you will love his people, that you will love others. You will love your neighbor as he states earlier in chapter 22, he states that you will love your neighbor. And just as you helped your neighbor, clothed your neighbor, fed your neighbor, visited your neighbor, you have done these things to me. You have loved your neighbor as you loved yourself. If you go over to 1 John chapter 2, speaking of love, beginning at verse 7. Beloved, I am not writing a new commandment, but an old commandment which you have had from the beginning. John's not saying anything new here. John is writing them as he states an old commandment. I'm reminding you of this. The word which you have heard, on the other hand, I am writing you a new commandment to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness in passing away and the true light is already shining. The one who says he is in the light and yet hates his brother is in the darkness until now. The one who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. So we see that, again, loving your brother, that there's a call to love each other. And this is important. And Paul is telling them back in Thessalonica, he is telling them to excel in this, to continue, to not just settle for, well, I'm doing these things, but to continue and press on and do more. And we move on from, so we establish, so we, we look at, okay, love. We understand love. We've looked at it in, in our study of First Corinthians 13. We looked at it and we studied it and we understand that it's not a, it's not just some feeling. It's not a noun. It's a verb. It's something that you're doing. It's an action. Okay? So then let's go back to Paul and his calling them to love. If you go back to First Thessalonians chapter 3. So he's called them to love. And if we love... We abound in love for one another and for all people, just as we also do for you, so that he may establish your hearts without blame and holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Okay, and there's there's three things that I want to look at um, this morning uh, that, you know, we looked at love. We quickly went back and reviewed love. But if we if we excel in love. Then for the rest of the book here, and we're not going to go verse by verse. Like I said, this is an overview, so don't get worried there. Uh, that we're going to look at three things. That if we excel in love, and, and the rest of the book here, he talks about these three things. And we will live morally right. We will be ready for the return of Christ. And we will live in harmony with one another. So as we look at this love, as we look at this continue, he calls, he continues then on in verse, uh, 
verse 13, to be blameless in holiness. Holiness is a quality of holiness in the personal conduct. So in our personal conduct, we are to be holy. Well, what does holy mean? It means sacred, morally blameless, and separate from sin. Consecrated to God. That's what he's calling us there when he uses the term holiness. We are separated from the world. And, if you, and when we read chapter 4 here, just a little bit here, starting in verse 1, Finally then, brother, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus, that as you receive from us instruction as you, how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. For you know what commandments we gave you by authority of the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Our separateness from the rest of the world. That you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. Not in lustful passion, like the Gentiles who do not know God. As we looked at the history of Thessalonica and the Roman culture itself, the society that these Thessalonians lived in, and I would say we live in today as well, promotes sexual impurity, a low standard of morality. And we see that when we study 1 Corinthians 5, a very low standard of morality that one man would take his own father's wife. But to the Greeks and to the Romans, they looked down upon chastity. They thought that it was an unreasonable restriction and it was promoted, uh, promiscuity was promoted in all aspects of their daily lives. So as we understand where these people are coming from, we see Paul is calling them that in your society you need to stand going back to holiness, that you need to be separated from the rest of the people, the rest of society, the rest of the Greek culture, the rest of the Romans. And as we see today that this is also in our, our country, a country that once stated, in God we trust, we now have become so far away. It's everywhere. And we have to ask ourselves, how does that affect us today in our society? Are we staying separated from that? There's a story. When I was growing up, I was probably fifth or sixth grade, somewhere in there. And we'd come out here to visit my uncle who lived up in Loveland. And one evening, our families were sitting around the television. I don't even know what we were watching. And all of a sudden, there was this bedroom scene that came on okay well being the uh, the preacher's kid that i was and, and knowing that that's not what we should be watching even though there was the adults there i get right up and i go over turn the tv off and walk out of the room <laughs> because i knew that that was something that we weren't supposed to be there wasn't holy. God hadn't called us to that. That was something that was contrary to God's word. And 
how are we doing? I, we have to ask ourselves, how are we doing this morning? How are we doing today? How, are we, how have we separated ourselves from this world? It's very hard to not be exposed to this in our daily lives. It's not just on TV. It's not just in advertising. It's not just in um, the things that we see. But it's in conversations with people all over the place. Um, and yet, we are to be separated. We are con- uh, consecrated to God. And so we ask ourselves, okay, it's, 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 over, uh, uh, it's overwhelming sometimes. How are we to continue, as Paul says, to be sanctified? How do we excel still more as he uh, commands them? In chapter uh, 4, verse 1 there, that we separate ourselves, that God wants us to be sanctified. That is, his, that is His will for us. Well, in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, there's a good place to start. And, and, and as we struggle with this, it's something that we are surrounded by. And yet, here is the cure. Here is what we can do. Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present yourself, your bodies, a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God. Well, how can I do that when I'm in such a perverse society? He goes on, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable to God. So we need to be renewing our minds daily. We need to be in His Word. We need to begin our... We need to take time for His Word and put our minds in here, in this, in the Bible. Galatians 5.16 also, we know we're familiar with uh, this. Let's turn there quickly. Paul calls the Galatians in verse 16, but I say walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desires against the Spirit and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. And then he continues on in verse 19. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, Enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes of dissension, fractions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like this, of which I forewarned you. That those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit, again, how is it that we are to live? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. So if we... How can we, Paul calls us to excel in our sanctification, to be holy. Paul gives us instructions to the Romans as we looked at in chapter 12. And also in Galatians 5.16 to walk in the Spirit. I want to stop here for a minute before we move on and look at holiness. Because I think it's something that is really not discussed and, and as we in, in in the Christian society today there's a three letter word 
And it's called sin and it's a taboo to talk about. But it's important that we do. Because if we don't understand what sin is, then we're not going to understand what it means to be holy. We're not going to understand what it means to live a sanctified life. The, the, uh, a life that is befitting of those who've been called to be separated. Defining sin, this is one definition. There's this uh, Nelson's Dictionary. It defines sin as lawlessness or transgression of God, God's will, either by omitting to do what God's law requires or by doing what it forbids. In thought, 1 John 3.15, in word, Matthew 5.22, or in deed, Romans 1.32. Okay. The sin was brought into the world by Adam. He was the represent he was the representative for mankind. And in Romans 5 Paul is telling us he's giving us a contrast between um the the one who brought sin in and the one who brings life Jesus Christ. And just as him being the representative for mankind because of his sin, it is now passed down to all men. Romans 3.23, we're very familiar with that. But how is it that we sinful man can live with such a holy God? A God that cannot sin. James 1.13 says that. You can go back and look at that. How is it that we can stand and how is it that we can be righteous? How is it, you know, Paul, are you asking us to do something that is impossible? How can we be holy? In the book, The Holiness of God by R.C. Sproul, I was reading that and it gives a, a description in, in, of, of Martin Luther. And I, what a fascinating man. Many considered him to be crazy, to be... Um, uh, however, if you look at him, he was a genius. And, and before his conversion, before he had that moment where the lightning was struck very close to him and, and he falls down and, and, and says, okay, God, I will become a monk. He was thriving as, as a law student. So he was familiar with the law. And um, he, he knew it inside and out. And there's a story that comes from him, it's from his first mass. He's he has just been ordained, and he's celebrating his first mass. His family's there. His dad, who was very uh, not very or was very upset and not very proud of his son from leaving the uh, lucrative um, job as being a lawyer, being an attorney, to going to becoming a monk. However, his father is proud because he's been ordained, and he's about to give his first mass. And in, uh, it's stated here, when he came to the prayer of consecration, that moment in the Mass when Luther would exercise his priestly authority for the first time to invoke the power of God to perform the great miracle of transstantation, uh, the changing of the elements of bread and wine to the real body and blood of Christ, Luther faltered. He became speechless. He was unable to continue. 
And later he explains why it is that he was unable to continue. And he says in his own words, At these words, I was utterly stupefied and terror-stricken. I thought to myself, With what tongue shall I address such majesty? Seeing that all men ought tremble in the presence of even an earthly prince. Who am I that I should lift up my eyes or raise my hands to the divine majesty? The angels surround him. At his nod, the earth trembles. And shall I, a miserable little pygmy, say, I want this, I ask for that? For I am dust and ashes and full of sin, and I am speaking to the living, eternal, and the true God. Martin Luther had an understanding of God's holiness that I think is important that all of us, all Christians today should have. Because too many times, if we don't understand our sin, we're not even exposed to the fact that we're sinning and that God loves us and He wants us to... And we should follow this Christ, this God that loves us and His Son. But we have no idea what sin is and we don't know what the holiness of God is. How on earth can we walk and respond to, God, uh, to Paul's call to excel more? How can we understand our own salvation if we don't understand our own depravity? And this is something that we've heard the stories of Martin Luther that he fought with, made himself sick. And we've talked about the, the times that he would go into confession and, and six hours of confession. And that he was beating himself up, almost killed himself by starvation because he wanted to know. And, and as I said before, he was a lawyer and he knew law and he knew God's law. And he knew that God was just. And like he says here, I am but dust and ashes full of sin. How can God, knowing law, how can God be holy and just and still accept us? Because if he does, if he grades on the curve, then he's not just at all. And he goes against everything that he is. And that's what Luther struggled with. And it wasn't until he came face to face with Paul in the book of Romans that he understood that despite our sin, we do stand justified in Christ alone. And it's Christ's merits that make us justified before Christ. And I want to read this little thing that he wrote. In that realization that, now remember, he was struggling with himself. He was beating himself up. In fact, he almost starved himself to death because he thought that if I, that I have to justify myself, that I have to do it. And I have to confess my sins six hours a day because um, I have not loved the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, and strength as Jesus has commanded us to do. But he says after coming face to face with Paul, and again, this is from uh, the book, The Holiness of God from R.C. Sproul. I greatly long to understand Paul's epistle to the Romans and nothing stood in the way but that one expression, the justice of God, because I took it to mean that justice whereby God is just 
and deals justly in punishing the unjust. My situation was that although an impeccable monk, I stood before God as a sinner, troubled in conscience, and I had no confidence that my merits would would assuage me. Therefore, I do not love a just and angry God, but rather hated and murmured against him. Yet I clung to the dear Paul in a great yearning to know what he meant in talking about justification. Night and day I pondered until I saw the connection between the justice of God and the statement that the just shall live by faith. Then I grasped that the justice of God is that righteousness by which through grace and sheer mercy, God justifies us through faith. Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. The whole of scriptures took on a new meaning. And thereas before the justice of God filled me with hate. Now it became to me an expressible, sweet and great love. This message of Paul became to me a gate of heaven. If you have a true faith that Christ is your Savior, then at once you have a gracious God, for faith leads you and opens up God's heart and will that you should see pure grace and overflowing love. This it is to behold God in faith, that you should look upon His fatherly, friendly heart in which there is no anger nor ungraciousness. He who sees God as angry does not see Him rightly, but looks only at a curtain as if a dark cloud had been drawn across his face. Martin Luther understood the law and understood his sinfulness. And then God opened his eyes in in Romans, discussing and telling and explaining that the just shall live by faith. And he opened that up to him. And just as, as, as Martin Luther understood who he was in relationship to God, and that he was mere man. Isaiah also, in the first, uh, sixth chapter of Isaiah, in the year of the king Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face. And with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold tremble at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filled with smoke. And it's, it's interesting to note here that Creatures who were created to serve God, to sing of his holiness, to worship him, covered their face. And not just covered their face, but they covered their feet. As he told Moses in the burning bush, take off your shoes. You're on holy ground. These angels, these seraphim stood in the presence of God. And covered their feet because they were on holy ground. That's creatures who were created to sit in heaven, to sing of God's holiness, to do his work, to be in heaven 
before man ever entered heaven. Angels were there. And they're there, and yet they cover their face. But I love the response. And this is probably the same thing I'm going to do when I get to heaven and I see God. Or if I were to see Him now, I would fall flat on my face. In verse 5, it says, Who is me? For I am ruined. Because I am a man of unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Woe is me, for I am ruined. I am undone. I am falling apart because I am in the presence of God the Creator. And we just saw that the, the, the seraphims were saying, holy, holy, holy. God is different from everything else. He is separated and there is none like Him. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And Isaiah, chosen of God, falls down on his face and says, I am undone. I have come undone. Woe is something that means not just, whoa, hey, take it easy there. Woe is a word that is condemnation. Every time Jesus used it in the New Testament, in His ministry, it was to condemn Condemn is me, for I am undone, a man of unclean lips. And I am living among a people of unclean lips. And for my eyes have seen the King of the Lord. So Martin Luther understood the holiness of God. Isaiah understood the holiness of God. Do you? Do you understand the holiness of God and that it is and what He has done for us, and who you are in relation to Him. Because too many times today I hear this so flippantly used that God is my grandpa, that He's this best friend. That And, and this is what just really got to me. I saw this shirt that said, Jesus is my homeboy. And I, and I just wanted to cringe and understand, do you not understand who He is? He spoke and creation was there. Nothing happened except the very words, creation, what you see today when you look to the heavens, what you see today here on earth, he spoke and it was. And that doesn't cause you to fall flat on your face. So it's an understanding of who we are, holiness, to be holy. And Paul is calling us, Calling us to excel in that. And that we need to understand in all of this. There, we could spend weeks and, and months going through all of this. But I just want to give you a look at what Paul is telling us here. If we go back to Thessalonians. So call, God has called us to sanctification. To live not as, in the text here, he's talking about immorality because that was the way of the Romans. We've, you know, in, in understanding and, and studying Corinthians, we all know what a perverse and sick society that was. 
And he's calling them to live separately. Yet, how are we doing? Are we separated? So God's calling us to sanctification there. Next, in, uh, in the book, in chapters 4, verses 13 through 5.11, God's calling us to excel and be ready. Because Christ is returning. And in the Thessalonian church, there was some confusion. People were worried. There was some confusion about what happened to those who died. Oh, they died in Christ. Christ is coming back. And oh, they died. They missed it. Or we've been persecuted so bad. And, and it says there that we talked about in chapter 2 that just like those people of Judea, the church of Judea, that were being persecuted by the Jews, that they killed the Messiah, they killed their own prophets, that these people in their society, these people, their people, the Gentiles, were persecuting them just as the, church, the Jews had the church of Judea. And so many people were worried that, you know what, there's um, Paul, obviously, we said, wasn't there very long. So maybe the end times... He didn't get into great detail, but they were familiar with, you know what? You know, if suffering is so bad, man, did we miss Christ? And so Paul is calling them and he's giving them a little instruction here as to what's going to happen. That we need not grieve like those who have no hope. Paul didn't tell us that we shouldn't grieve. However, if we have, if we are saved if we have a relationship with our Lord Jesus Christ, that is of Him saving us, salvation through Christ, then we know we have a hope that we will see those, our brothers and sisters who go before us. We know that we will see them and we have a hope that Jesus will be back. And He explains to them that at some time He's going to meet us in the air and those who have fallen asleep will go before us. We will not precede those who have fallen asleep in verse 16 of chapter 4, for those the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout and with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will arise. Then he who, those we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. And then he says in verse 18, comfort those who are grieving with these words. Don't fear. Because if we are doing as He has called us to do, if we are abounding in love, if He may establish in your hearts without blame and holiness, if we are living in God's Word, if we are living a holy life, a consecrated upon God, separated from our society, from those who are, we are with, if we are living holy, then we have no fear and we do not need to grieve as those who do not have this hope. But then also when it comes to the day of the Lord, and we talk about excelling, that if we're living holy, we should be prepared. If you're living a holy life, you should be prepared. And in chapter 5, he, he's talking to them about, you know what, we, as, as far as the times and the epics, we have no need to say anything 
or we need to anything be written to you. For we do not, we know that the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. We don't know basically when God's coming back. We don't know when Jesus is going to, what I just got done talking to you about meeting those who have gone before us in the sky with Christ as, as the trumpet of God is called out. We need not concern ourselves with times because we don't know when he's coming back. However, we need to be prepared, he says. We live in love and holiness and there is no need to fear, as he says in verse 6. So, so then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. A call to be ready. It's a call to be prepared. Verse 8. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or sleep, we will live together with him. Again, he says, encourage one another and build up one another just as you are doing. So he says, if we are going to be living holy, we need to be prepared. We don't know when, but you know what? We know what we need to do. We need to prepare. And just like he says, there's that contrast, again, of those who, um, as in chapter 4, those who are not living morally and those in morality and those who are not, he calls us separate. But he says here, too, that in verse 7, for those who sleep, do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. Basically saying, what is controlling you? You need to be ready. We should be prepared. And as we discussed earlier, our mind should be upon Christ in uh, Colossians chapter 3. He tells us that we should be looking into heaven. Our mind should be set upon Christ. And that is going to prepare us so that we need not worry, he says. So if we're going to be, we need to excel, we need to be ready, he says. And finally here, uh, in chapter 5, we are called to love, to excel in love, and we are called to excel in holiness. But we are to excel towards each other, living our, our uh, conduct towards each other. We need to love each other and we need to help each other in that love so that we may excel. Chapter 5 of Thessalonians, verse 14 we urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly, encourage faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone. See that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another. And for all people, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophetic utterances. But examine everything carefully, just as the Bereans had done. Hold fast to that which is good. And abstain from every form of evil. So it's a so it's, it's he's telling us that we are excelling in love. I want you to do more. And there are people that you're going to be faced with in the church that are going to be unruly, that are going to be weak, and you need to be patient with them. 
Because like we discussed, love is a verb. Love is something that you do. And in this, Paul is saying, you need to be working with these people. You need to be helping them with the problems in verses 12 through 15. But then in verses 16 through 22, he says, he sets a pattern of life for them. This is the way you should be living, rejoicing always, praying without ceasing, giving thanks in everything. Okay. So we so Paul has has come to this is writing back to this church. He was worried about them. Because he was there for such a short time, he thought, you know what? Someone might have come in, that Satan might have come in and 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 caused some trouble. I was only there for a short period. I want to make sure that these guys are doing okay. So he sends uh Timothy back there to check in on them. He heads off to Corinth. Chapter 2 and 3, you can read it for yourself, but Paul or Timothy comes back with the report. And Timothy comes back with a, with a very overwhelmingly great report that these guys are thriving, that they're doing good. And so Paul writes back to them and he tells them to excel. And he tells them to excel in love so that you may stand holy so that when Christ returns uh, that you may be Blameless. That's a lot to do, Paul. But I thought that that we couldn't do this. Didn't you say that it is through faith? How am I going to get through this? How am I going to make it? How am I supposed to do all this? Look at verse 23. Now may the God of peace Himself sanctify you entirely. Oh, there's our sanctification. God is going to sanctify us. And may your spirit and soul and body be preserved, complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Awesome. But it's verse 24. Faithful is he who calls you, and he also will bring it to pass. What a relief. I don't have to worry about all that. I know that there are struggles that we have here on earth. But God, if we are his, he who calls us, he will bring it to pass. He calls us to faithfulness. He calls us to holiness. He calls us to love Him. He calls us to love our neighbor. But He says He will bring it to pass. He will do these things that we do not have to worry. So brothers and sisters, in conclusion, there's a lot there that He calls them to, that we are to continue to live and excel and do more and more. But fear not. For faithful is he who calls you, and he also will bring it to pass. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning. Father, reading the words that Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica, Father, there's so much there. And Father, I just felt like that we, we haven't even touched it. Father, this is the tip of the iceberg. 
Father, that there's so much in there that, uh, Lord, that I wish that we had more time to continue. But, Father, the requirements that you've put on us, Father, our sanctification, Father, to love those who hurt us, Father, to, to be holy. As you call us in First Peter, be holy, for I am holy. It tells us. Father, that is a, a task that we are unable to do. Father, for we know that your righteous standard is far exceeds any deeds. Even Martin Luther in a, in a monastery surrounded by other monks, other, surrounded by your word, isolated from the world, sinned. And Father, He knew it. Father, He knew that You called for righteousness in our lives. And that, Father, that we cannot be justified on our own. Father, this morning we thank You for Your Son, Jesus Christ, who came knew no sin and took the sins of the world upon His shoulders, hung on a cross, paid the penalty for sin. And that, Father, our salvation lies in the merits not of ourselves, but, Father, of Jesus Christ. Father, for He lived a sinless, perfect, blameless life. And He took our punishment upon His shoulders. Father, we praise You for Your plan of salvation. And at times, we don't understand it. Father, You have called us and You have sanctified us. And Father, You will bring it to pass. We praise You for those words of encouragement. Father, as we prepare uh, to take of the Lord's table, Father, we may, us, may we go before You with an understanding. Father, may we do this with an understanding that we and of ourselves can't do this. But Father, it, was, it took the death of Your Son. And Father, as we take the cup, as we take the bread this morning, let us understand that we now stand holy and just before a righteous God. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for your grace and your mercy. In Christ's name, amen.